to be a black founder in 2020 is to be... If you'd asked me that question yesterday, you would have had a different response than it would have today. Cautious. An opportunity maker? It's to be noticed, but still not quite understood. There are so many founders of color that are going without. To be a resilient founder. Yes, to be resilient. Definitely mastered resilience. What's up on Foundation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for listening in to part two of our 2020 updates episode. If you haven't already, maybe go back and listen to part one. Lots of good nuggets there and sets the context for this second part. As a reminder, we brought together a handful of founders from our first 25 plus episodes to talk about the black founder journey in 2020. Thanks again to Kayla, Marcus, Kwame, Claudius, Bara, Camille, and Wale for catching us up and reflecting on the year of the century. So far, 2020. Our episode is sponsored by Founders Live, a global platform built to inspire, educate, and entertain the modern entrepreneur. Be sure to visit founderslive.com or check for a link in the show notes. Please support us by following and subscribing to our podcast. We are available anywhere you like to listen. If you are inspired, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or on podchaser.com. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. We'll see you all next in 2021. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. 2020 has been an incredible and intense year. A global pandemic, a free-falling economy with millions unemployed and many struggling just to maintain the basics. We also saw massive social unrest and protests around racial injustice and throw in a highly contentious election and some natural disasters and climate events as well. Wow, exhausting just to say all that. But through it all, day by day, startups and founders struggle, lead, and keep on keeping on. Many have been truly tested this year, especially those who are underrepresented, and that's why we're here. Since we started in 2019, we've had 25 episodes interviewing 27 founders from 25 companies. In part one, we highlighted some of the successes and setbacks achieved by this group. Here are some other interesting facts about our guests. We've certainly had several multi-generational African Americans, but we've also had some who are first generation, as well as others who hail from all over the diaspora including Nigeria, Ghana, Haiti, Trinidad, and the Virgin Islands. We've had companies based all over the U.S., including D.C., Seattle, New York, Houston, Chicago, Boston, Charlotte, Atlanta, Pittsburgh, and L.A. We've even had our first company from the continent based in Nigeria. Over 45% of our guests were women founder CEOs, and founders ranged in age from early 20s all the way up to late 40s and early 50s. So tech founders of African descent definitely come from a wide range of backgrounds and areas. For this episode, we were fortunate to catch up with several of our former guest founders. Their stories continue to inspire and teach us all. Lending us their perspectives are Barakola from Carbice, Camille Terry of ChargerHelp, Kayla Fleming from Smaggy AI, Marcus Bullock from FlickShop, Kwame Bowler and Claudius Memba from New, and Wale Ayodele from FlickPay. In part one, we opened with some quick updates from these founders and dug into the profound impact, both good and bad, of COVID-19 on their startups. Now in part two, we continue by hearing how these entrepreneurs saw their companies, communities, and the startup ecosystem as a whole 
affected by the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent protests and unrest. Here are Marcus, Camille, Barak, Kayla, and Kwame and Claudius giving their perspectives. Um, it's interesting because I promise you, I haven't talked about my blackness this much in the last 39 years of my life. I mean, I talk about being a black man at least 10 times a, you know, a, a, a week. And, and whether it be from different podcasts, corporate partners, some customers who just are trying to figure out ways to be able to be more understanding and lend their own privilege to these kinds of conversations. I, I find friends of mine who have been, who I thought have been mission aligned with me for years that will, would never have the, the seemingly uncomfortable conversations that are happening now. They wouldn't have happened a year ago. And so I'm really grateful for it. I mean, I'm grateful for all of this new progression because I'll tell you, I mean, if there's a time in the world where we need to see, I mean, I'm talking about drastic, radical change, it's now. And, you know, the world is starting to shift where folks that look like me are the cool ones now, right? Where we used to be the ones that were boxed out. Now it's like, wait a minute, how can we get more of your voice into the conversation? Because in order for us to really understand some of the barriers that are set in front of you, Marcus, we need to actually hear from you instead of banking on these focus groups that we've hired that don't have anybody in a room looking like you to contribute to our corporate social responsibility obligation requirements or our ESG conversations. Even as an entrepreneur, we're starting to see progression happen across the circles where they typically have been reserved for middle-aged white men who will box out people who look like me out of the room. But it was like the perfect storm of the pandemic plus George Floyd that gave us this kind of sort of this this bubble over effect that allowed for it to spill over conversation into different environments outside of like the homes. And it was no longer private. There was no longer a I'm in a cut talking about how police did this to my cousin, you know, last month or how this thing, you know, turned into a major big deal at the skating ring, which landed with a police officer tasing me in the back of my back. Like that stuff happened in secret. For me, I truly believe in lanes. I support, you know, my community members that are out there protesting and that they're on the front lines. And for us, we feel like our lane is definitely within like this clean tech space to create jobs, to create opportunity, to create economic mobility. And most importantly, to show up and show people that like, you know, we're just as capable as anyone else who should be treated as humans. And it's like frustrating that you have to do that. But like, I think really like what this year has really emphasized for my founder and I, because we're a predominantly black team, um, is just really like how much more we really want to make sure that we're successful and that we're, you know, a part of the conversations outside, you know, the conversations where folks like us don't usually be a part of those conversations. Because I think that all of that contributes to a situation like George Floyd, as well as just like everything that, you know, our folks have gone through being in this country. One of the things that also came out of this, specifically within the VC world, is that you started to get all of these Black funds that started popping up where they were dedicating money for Black founders, right? And two things with that. Like the first thing was that we had more people reaching out to us, and which was cool at first, but it did allow me to like take a step back and be like, okay, you know, like what are your true intentions? And, you know, some of the things we heard from other Black founders is that you know, there were some VCs that were just trying to make a quota of just like meeting a lot of black founders, but not necessarily writing a check. Right. So like while you got a ton of first meetings, you know, that second and third meetings and actually like cutting the check wasn't really happening. And then you had really large funds that were seemingly putting aside a certain check amount. But like in the grand scheme of things, it was still probably like 0.01 percent of their overall fund. 
So if anything, it really forced me to rely on my advisors. Like I have an advisor through the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. His name is John Siegler, who's an older white gentleman. And we have very candid conversations. And I really appreciate, I think, his care for the company, his care for, for us, right? I was happy that I had somebody in my corner that like understood from the VC side, but then also like actually cared about, you know, myself and the company that they could help, you know, he could help guide us the right way. I think the one of the things that we've talked about, not, not just him, but other um, advisors as well, you know, when you take money from certain funds, right, and like, what does that signal to like other funds for like later stages? So there can be this idea of like, oh, you know, you only got money because you were a Black founder and maybe you didn't get all of the due diligence, right? Um, because you took money from one of these funds that were just for Black founders. It's just basically signaling and understanding like, oh, wow, people are really going to look at all of these things in order to form an opinion on you, whether they will invest in you later. And so I think what that did for me is just kept me level-headed. So like when we did start getting a lot of people reaching out to us, I wasn't like overly excited about it. You know, I always tell my advisor, like, I'm not excited until the check is in the account. So (laughs) it's like, you can reach out and like, want to talk to me as much as possible, but like, are you going to write the check, right? After George Floyd murder, I, I wrote something posted it and I've been trying to do some things to be helpful that are still in the works. You know, I have a seven-year-old, nine-year-old daughter. We just went to the uh, Equal Justice Initiative Legacy Memorial Rosa Parks Museum this past weekend, actually, because they're more aware. My youngest daughter wanted to put out a Black Lives Matter sign in the front yard. I, you know, put out a sign that I asked them to work on uh, to encourage voting so it's definitely, there's been more attention on social involvement, I will say. It's not really activism. It's just involvement and really, you know, swimming in knowledge and, and history to try to really understand why we are where we are. I think we're all having conversations. We've had conversations at Carbice about that before George Floyd. And then after we've continued those conversations. But we have a lot of people on our team who've had some real visceral experiences with that type of policing culture and things like that. And team members have heard from them before. So in many ways, the way Carbice has been built was ready for this moment. And personally, it allows me an opportunity in my family to leverage that with my own kids now to talk a little bit more about kind of the bigger vision of Carbice and you know why we are here in Atlanta doing what we're doing, bringing high tech jobs and opportunities and inspiration to every community and how important that is. You can build organizations different ways for different reasons. We were built for authenticity of not just what we bring to the market, but who we are as people and to be willing to engage in real conversations. And I think when you have the world the way it is today, it's important to be the type of people that are reflective, uh, forgiving, curious. And, you know, these are values that just have permeated Carbides from the beginning. And so it makes it easier to absorb these things that happen in the world and provide some damping to the everyday things. So I think the fundamental question is, how do you deal with challenge? And, you know, you can deal with challenge by just, you know, gritting your teeth and pushing through, or you can deal with it by a combination of recognizing it for what it is, that it's not intrinsically a bad thing, that it's just something that exists for you to respond to, and then responding to that in a way. 
That's an interesting question. I do think that for all of the unrest that has happened, it has raised quite a bit of awareness just about communities of color, you know, the the resources that they have and maybe the differences in just the inequities in the access to resources across those communities. And so I think maybe if anything, what I've thought about is, you know, for the work that I do and for how I'm oriented, there's a piece of what I do that is bare bones entrepreneurship. And then there's another piece that has to do with ultimately, how do you focus on just ensuring everybody has a better opportunity because they've got like the basic resources that they need to ensure that they have successful communities. So for the work that we do to really make it happen, you know, there are a set of workers who are not the tech, you know, Illuminati. (laughs) Well, maybe that's not even the right way to say it, but they're not the first people that you think about when you think about making tech happen. We, We now are celebrating the rise of the frontline worker. And in in the water industry, these are the technicians, right? So whether it folks with a plumbing or electrical kind of orientation, high school level degree, you know, we all of a sudden realize, uh, whoa, like we need those guys to go out because, you know, water doesn't happen by magic. But we are having an opportunity to also tap into some of the issues that have plagued the industry around workforce development. So there's a fantastic opportunity to really reinvent even what work looks like for or the maintenance guys who are uh, an essential layer to ensuring water infrastructure works. And so we are having the opportunity to support that, I think, in very real ways. So that's been pretty exciting. You know, we've put a lot of money's effort, time and thinking into how the college educated set can get access to tech and have it and be a part of you know, just just leading the revolution for permeating tech across our societies. But we forget that, you know, most societies are buffered by the blue collar workforce anyway. So I'm happy that we have a part to play in including them as a part of the work that we're doing. We haven't seen, at least in terms of our business or sales, a direct shift in what was happening. We did notice, especially when we were going to conversations with other people and ways in which we should structure or change our website. One person in particular had really strongly advocated for us including ourselves and our team on our website, which was just something we hadn't done in the past. And it wasn't because we had strategically just chosen not to. It was just a, it was something that we really didn't think about. Like Same thing with putting some of our mission and core values and some of the other impact areas that our business really impacts. But personally, and even within our household, it was a very grueling thing to have to deal with. Main on a daily basis, that video had circulated in my time feed as often as like maybe once every 20 to 30 minutes. It was hard to not see that and just how grueling and how disgusting it was. In some ways, I believe it really did unite the country in a sense to where I believed everyone really believed that downright what had happened was completely unacceptable. And that change was now not only necessary, but needed to be imminent. But I did actually on a daily basis, sometimes would get frustrated with the lack of, not only the lack of change, but just like, I felt as if I've always known this reality as a black man in America. I've realized this ever since I was 17 or 16. But I think for other people, especially people that were outside of our community, it was the first time that they were seeing it and they couldn't unsee it and they couldn't escape it. And I think that's why this time it was different. And this time, why there was so much attention. 
I genuinely believe if not for the pandemic, and if not for all of these people being inside of their homes, being married to their devices, with no way of being able to escape without sports playing or anything else to pacify the public, people were able to really see how ugly this country can be for some of its citizens. Definitely a hard thing to deal with and to have to go through on a consistent basis. And it really impedes your ability to be productive and accomplish the things you want to do when all you see around you is black men being killed. And I'm hopeful that we have the right leadership. I think, as Kwame said, the world kind of being in the pandemic pushed everybody like you couldn't escape it. Um, but I think what we didn't have was the leadership in place at the top level to really address it correctly. And now uh, with the election happening, I'm hoping that we can see some structural and, and governmental change in terms of how the laws and, and regulations are, are done that affect African-Americans and, and people of color in such negative lights. We can address these systemic changes now that we have hopefully uh, the right or a, a different leadership in place. Hey, everyone. This is Nick Hughes, founder and CEO of Founders Live. We are the global venue for modern entrepreneurs, where we inspire, educate and entertain entrepreneurs through our global online platform, the community where you can find various aspects of education, help, and inspiration to make you a better entrepreneur, as well as our fun pitch competitions that are virtual and in-person when possible, where we highlight emerging talent from all corners of the world. Join us to help with our pursuit of entrepreneurial equality, which says no matter what you look like, where you are born, how you identify gender or orientation, everyone deserves equal opportunity for success and wealth creation. So find our membership options at founderslive.com. In my conversations with the founders, I posed a challenging question. How to sum up what it means to be a black entrepreneur in 2020? Their answers were profound and interestingly represent all that it takes to be underestimated and succeed anyway. Here are their views, starting with Camille and Wale. To be a black founder in 2020 is to be... Fill in the blank. Cautious. Just to everything that I spoke about earlier, I think that, you know, we're in a space where folks, they're putting money towards Black founders, but I think it's going to be very easy for them to be like, if we don't succeed, for them to be like, well, we gave them money. You know what I mean? Like, you guys said that we weren't investing in Black founders. We did it and they failed. And then mind you, like, there's lots of people who start startups and like fail, but they still get more capital, right? And so to be cautious, at least for me specifically, is figuring out who's actually on my team. Um, and this is something that I talk about often is like being from South Central, like one of the things that I feel like we're really good at is like being able to read someone. You can really understand if somebody's really with you or not with you, right? If they're faking the front or not. And so I lean into that and, you know, and I'll get on a call with a, a firm, you know, we never send out our deck first. We always do kind of like a five to 10 minute and I'll fill them out. And even if it's in a direct alignment with what we're doing, if I can't vibe with you and my gut's like, no. We cut that call short, right? And so, like, that's the cautious piece of it. It's just like leading into the stuff that I learned growing up and applying it to this world, which a lot of stuff functions around the same rules, right? Of like knowing who you should talk to, who you shouldn't talk to, right? So, yeah, so cautious is definitely the word. It's to be a resilient founder. And this is because, like, as a black founder, and, uh, you know, the odds are like really stacked against us. And, you know, when you look through all the reports, all the numbers in terms of VC funding, and, you know, a lot of like different opportunities, even outside, outside of just um, funding, right? So you see that it's a lot tougher for black founders. And then, uh, so being able to still create like amazing stuff, like, um, beyond all those challenges, right? Um, 
I, I would say like you know, resilience is one thing that really um, stands out for me, right? For black founders generally, it's to be noticed but still not quite understood. Like you got to listen, listen to understand. To notice, you can just kind of hear or look, but you have to really listen to understand. And I think we're beginning on that journey, so I don't want to be negative. If you'd asked me that question yesterday, it would have had a different response than it would have today. Tomorrow was going to be have a different one than the one I'm going to give you right now. But let's go with it, though. To be a Black founder in 2020, it, it means that you have definitely mastered resilience. If you got to this point and you have had any level of even self-blame success uh, as an entrepreneur, then you are resilient. You practice the grit that was necessary in order to be able to get you through some of the darkest moments of your life. You've gotten to places and met people who you just knew were going to be the ones that were going to open doors for you. And they were the ones who were intentional about slamming them in your face just a few seconds later. You believe that this was going to be the fundraising opportunity that you had that was going to allow you to catapult your business forward, yet to only find out it was going to be another six more months of bootstrapping. And if you've gotten through all of those things, then that means that you are resilient and you have grit. And I can't wait to meet you. An opportunity maker? I don't know. I, I don't know if I always reflect on myself in that way in particular, whether it's woman founder, black founder, any of those things. So for the sphere of or, or the segment of work that I've taken on, you know, there's a lot to wade through and figure out. But I, I think at the end of the tunnel, the thing that keeps us pushing forward is that that opportunity that just seems within grasp if we can just, you know, clear a couple more hurdles. And I think maybe always, if, if anything, recognizing that you, you stand on the shoulders of, you know, the many who came before you that allow you to take advantage of those opportunities. I'm always reflective and appreciative of that. And I think that's really where the distinction is, is that all founders face the same challenges, regardless of the circumstances that we may have faced. I can find any founder of any ethnicity, of any gender, of any sexual orientation that faces those exact same challenges. I think uniquely what's disproportionate to many Black founders in comparison to other different groups is, one, the amount of capital dollars that often flow to them, and two, the, the socioeconomic status of themselves, their family, and loved ones. Being a founder is really to be in a position of privilege. You have to be in a position where you genuinely can exercise risk in a way to where if the worst case scenario happens, you don't ruin yourself or your family by taking that jump. And the sad reality is that more often than not, because of wealth inequalities, there are so many founders of color that are going without or even founders of color who refuse to take the jump just because they don't have the safety net that is afforded to others. And that's kind of like what I would say is like just a key difference there. I would use the word you, you described a little earlier. I would say to be a black founder in 2020 is to be resilient. I, I think that's the one thing I can say about everybody who, especially African-Americans who made it through this year. Um, it's, it's definitely thrown us for a loop and it has definitely been one of the hardest years I, I'm sure anyone has gone through. Like you have to be resilient to be able to get up every day and just kind of keep pushing and, and hopeful that some things will change. We ended our episode with what is hopefully a high note. The founders lay out their priorities and objectives for 2021. All of them share common themes of optimism and ambition. We start with Bara, who talks about doubling down on Atlanta. 
So we're, we're about to scale this business big time in 2021, and we are going to build a huge production facility in Atlanta, Georgia. You think from a business standpoint, how that affects the cost of doing business, especially as a manufacturing company. You can hire people of various backgrounds at various levels cost effectively. You can do that in Atlanta. It's hard to have a manufacturing company doing what we do in California. You can get the engineers, but, you know, can you afford to pay the technicians and the manufacturing workers in the same geographic area? So there's a diversity. There's an economic diversity that exists in the Atlanta area that can be leveraged for businesses. And I think that anybody that comes and takes a serious look at what's going on in this ecosystem, they talk to people like Paul Judge, Alan Nance, uh, they see what's happening with the Georgia Research Alliance. They're impressed. The CreateX program coming out of Georgia Tech, creating all these these wonderful startup companies. All of that is spilling over into this ecosystem in such a powerful way. And so the last thing I'll say is that it's just a cool place to be. I think there's just so many nice things about Atlanta. I mean, the culture here is so special and it, it really can vibe with people of all ages. So, you know, you can have fun here. Clearly, I, I, I drank the Kool-Aid. For Camille, 2021 is about using the wind in their sails from 2020 to broaden the footprint and serve more. The biggest part for us is it's, it's going to be the expansion. Next year, we're looking at Northern California, New York State, Florida, Texas, Colorado, and Washington. This is going to be our largest expansion. So this year, we did about 500 service contracts. And next year, we want to do 10,000 service contracts and end up with 33 full-time technicians. This year, we have three. And so it's really goal mode for us. I'm pretty excited because, you know, my team and I, we built all of this in literally like one year um, that we, you know, raised close to half a mil, that we, you know, have full-time technicians, that we have an app, that we have contracts and like, that's coming from people that, you know, I don't have my MBA. Like, I don't have, like, any of these, like, fancy, you know, background. But, like, we did it in a year. And I definitely think with the additional capital and with strategic VC firms, we'll be able to definitely um, hit our, our goals for next year. You know, personally, the reason why I do all any of this, right, is is because, you know, I truly believe in technology being able to enable, you know, economic mobility. And so for me, like, that's the thing that I'm always working on, right? Like, Charger Help is like a part of that. Like me speaking on panels is a part of that. So like, it doesn't really feel like attention because like my focus is on this idea of like technology enabling economic development and mobility. And I definitely know that we're going to be tremendously successful just of our success this year. So it's a great opportunity, uh, especially in the Biden administration. Um, there's going to be a lot of eyes on our industry and there's going to be a lot of opportunity and a lot of potential for success. Wale shares how they are nimbly jumping on a key industry insight to remain high value add. Over the last um, half of this year, right, I, I think I've seen that um, fintech has started rebundling again. So, so put it in a way, like there was a time when uh, for financial services to be delivered to people, people had to like really specialize. So you would have some companies just focus on savings or some companies focus on just collecting payments from customers and everything. But as the market has grown and people have gotten used to a lot of all these products, we're seeing where companies doing one thing, you know, now adding like a lot of other different offerings, right? So we see some payment companies today offering like e-commerce stores and different kind of packages to their customers. So I think that's been a very um, good insight. Right. So like being able to offer like different kinds of value to your customer, right? Um, is, is seeming to be a competitive advantage. 
And, and that's like a key insight we found out um, recently. So because what we are building at ClickPay um, literally is not just um, offering stuff to businesses, but we're actually building out an infrastructure that probably didn't exist before now. Right. So we're building an infrastructure that we want, you know, fintechs and even traditional financial institutions, right, to leverage on to, you know, serve merchants better. And this is not just in Nigeria or in Kenya, right? This is across, um, you know, seven different countries that we currently operate. So next year for us will be to focus more on our APIs and, you know, being able to get all these different people on board. Right, because for 2020, 2020 was about, you know, building capacity, building all these rails and getting everything set up. So we're very excited to see how that will pan out for us next year. For 2021, Marcus wants to use his momentum from this year to amplify impact next year. One of the things that we want to do, we want to learn how to do more of is figure out how to collaborate with other smaller businesses that want to increase their social impact footprint. There's the local mom and pop ice cream shop down the street that wants to figure out how to hire people coming home from out of D.C. jail. There's a local sub shop that wants to figure out where to source their new ingredients from. And they're coming from a farm that was built in Northeast that are it's ran by people that were that have felony convictions. These are the type of organizations that we want to collaborate with and those that are being forward thinking about this level of social impact and the footprint that they want to create in the world are our next set of partners. And I'm going to go find them all 2021. So if you see something around about Flickshop on Twitter, you definitely want to retweet it. Read the article, listen to the podcast, and share it with your friends and your family. Support us on social. That will spark up a conversation that you will absolutely love to be a part of. I think that the, the dinner table conversations change, which leads to policy change, when folks understand that there's a community of people that care about folks who have a felony conviction on their record and the folks who want to support those. And we can't wait for you to share with us the outcome of that conversation. The second thing I would say is the result of it, being, you know, now with it being holiday season, one of the places where we're spending all of our time thinking at least over the next 30 to 45 days is figuring out how to connect more of our children with incarcerated parents. So we're asking as many people as possible to become FlickShop angels that allow us to be able to give FlickShop credits to children so that they can send postcards to their mom and dad for free, especially during the holiday season. This is the time when we all feel a sense of connectedness and we are now realizing the impact of feeling broken away from some of the family members who we typically would spend time with. And now that empathy should be rolling through. And if, if, if it's there for you, uh, I would love for you to be one of the ones that support our children and become a flick shop angel. Ayla tells us about how to balance the many opportunities that come with water infrastructure with focus on key critical partnerships. There's water infrastructure that's in service of maybe a homeowner, for example, and then water infrastructure that's in service of maybe more more economic means. And over time, what we want to be able to do is to somehow get to the place where there's um, almost a bit of a portfolio strategy. And I think as you can appreciate where the need is, isn't necessarily where funds just flow. There's a lot of need across every space, but but how do you ensure just the reliable flow of funds for services to meet that? And so we, we've not, for example, dived into, you know, looking at water points on farms, for example. We've mostly kind of stayed on in, in the urban areas. We, we are just having to think about, you know, for urban water and being able to serve these water points, 
you know, what is the best way to really scale around that, given all of these new realities? And in the U.S., for different reasons, green infrastructure is this decentralized infrastructure that's emerging that is also requiring new ways of thinking and having creative monitoring approaches that ultimately allow long-term maintenance and sustainability. So I guess in terms of what's in our consideration set, although that it's still early days yet, that seems to be another place where opportunity is emerging because of the similarity, you know, around the challenges that that maintaining that kind of infrastructure requires. Finally, Claudius and Kwame fill us in on their roadmap and their geographic expansion plans. So I'm excited to be able to showcase uh, the functionality and the feature sets and the product that we built and, and get feedback from customers and iterate on that and faster and really deliver on that customer experience. I had a call hands with our engineering team today to kind of orient everybody on, on being customer focused and, and putting customers first. And so for me, that that's the exciting part, making sure that customers are getting to enjoy the application and the product that we built and having a good experience on it. And so transitioning into that, we are hitting the ground running. We are expanding into Phoenix Scottsdale. Ideally, because it is a counter-cyclical market to what we face in Seattle. So a going trend we would see consistently is that come Q3 or post-Q3, our numbers would drop uh, from Q4 all the way through to Q1. And then they would start to raise again in Q2. Phoenix is uniquely a counter market where it's Q1 and Q4 are its strongest times of year. Um, and it's Q2 and Q3 are its weakest. Us getting access to capital and resources to be able to deploy, to accurately experiment, um, and be able to significantly improve both the user experience and our product in general is what genuinely excites me. I just think it only goes up from here. Well, that's it for Founders Unfound for 2020. What a year. I want to thank all the folks who have helped us get to where we are today. Flora Marie, Deborah, Omama, Anisha, Wambui, Caitlin, Georgie, and Albert. I'd also like to express my gratitude to all our guests and to our guest host, Ivor Horn. Your stories and insights are what really resonate. And thanks to all our sponsors. We are grateful for your support and believing in us early on. Finally, I want to thank you, our audience, Unfoundation. We are honored that you choose to spend your time with us. As long as there are more than zero of you, I will keep bringing the inspirational founder stories that deserve to be told. We'll see you in 2021. We'd like to thank all our guests and our sponsor, Founders Live. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or simply go to foundersunfound forward slash listen to. That's listen, T-O. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Kihanya. Social media and other promotion by Umama Marzouk. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.